This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Fantastic to have you with us on the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast, marking World Mental Health Day. Speaking to 17-year-old Judy on some of the challenges her age group have faced over the last couple of years and what she is doing about it. Dr. Margaret is an advocate for mental health. She's a coach, an author, a businesswoman, and also the Falcon Doctor in the UAE. She was reflecting on some of the challenges she faced in her childhood and ultimately what needs to change in the workplace to better support employees. Speaking of the workplace, gender inclusivity, a hot topic right now. We were joined by two female entrepreneurs explaining why so many women are leaving corporate life and what companies can do to support a side hustle. Plus, in conversation with a gender consultant and auditor about some of the best and worst practices around for supporting and advancing women. And in our legal clinic with Ludmilla Malava, brand new birth certificate guidelines, single mothers in the UAE, what you need to know. And she was on hand to answer your questions about all aspects of the law, from custody to rent disputes. Life Balance on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. We're marking World Mental Health Day and thank you so much for all of your amazing messages, vulnerable messages. Finn saying, my two cats got me through the last three years after losing my husband. Whatever type of day you've had, there's nothing better than going home to your pets. Love, Finn, and a kiss. Sending a kiss back to you. And Ravi saying, mental health is a huge problem. I can't stop thinking about if men with guns were required to take a mental health checkup, Thailand wouldn't have happened. And I feel like that is such an interesting point in terms of access to help and something that we need to be doing an an awful lot more. This is for all you insurance companies out there on the health front. Um, But we're turning our attentions next to the younger generation because close to 40% of young people aged 18 to 24 in the Middle East struggle with their mental health in the last year. That's according to the Mental State of Worlds report and much of it, of course, due to the pandemic, lockdown, studying at home, feeling isolated, the list goes on, but it also said a surge in mobile phone and internet use meant people spent less time making human connections. We've got in the studio Judy Elfadil. She's joining us now, uh, one 17-year-old who's trying to help her friends who are struggling, but also the wider community as well. She's created a brand to raise awareness of mental health in young people here in Dubai. Judy, first of all, thank you for skipping off school for me. I appreciate it. How are you thank today? Thank you for having me. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm really well. We were just saying that, that importance of, like, how are you? Yeah. And really... Asking with intention and, and listening with intention. Exactly. Yeah. It's so important. And I think, I mean, I d- I've had those few moments where someone will really look at me and go, you know, how are you? And I'm like, don't look at me in the eye. I'm going to cry. Don't really, yeah. don't, don't really ask me how I am. <laughs> no, no, no. If we could just brush past that, that would be great. But yeah. when, I, when I think about the pandemic and I think about the age groups that were really hit hard, Mm-hmm. I think the the really littlies, you know, the toddlers who weren't able to go to nursery and socialise, we still don't know what that's going to lead to. Yeah. But when I think about that age group, the 18 to 24, who were denied, mm-hmm. really, that time at school. Yeah. I know exams, perhaps no one was exactly heartbroken about, <laughs> but, you know, university, socialising, mm-hmm. those connections. We don't just go to school for education, we go to school to see our friends. Yeah. And I wondered if you could share perhaps some of the struggles that you've witnessed or heard about in you know amongst your peers over the last few years Judy so I think that teenage mental health has always been um, an issue that 
not a lot of people talk about and not just something that isn't talked about but a very prevalent issue mm-hmm. um and i think that the pandemic only contributed to that but it it was a problem like nonetheless um you know having to i like one of the main things that come with poor mental health um and kind of reinforce that is you know that isolation and having to be forced into that isolation with you know the quarantine and mm-hmm. the whole pandemic kind of pushed that age group and i think not just teens but you know everyone into that even like deeper mm-hmm. which made the problem even worse I, i think you're right i don't think it's ever been easy to be a teenager I, never. i really don't yeah. i think every every generation of teenagers thinks they've got it the worst but when i think about you know what you and your peers have certainly been through and, and a lot of the contributing factors pandemic yes but also social media use social pressures you know workforce and you know thinking about that next stage i'm mm-hmm. not saying this to scare <laughs> i'm saying to, i'm saying this to, to validate yeah. I, i guess what an, what an awful lot of, of teens have been going through and mm-hmm. what are some of the ways that you again have like observed or heard about young people trying to deal with their struggles what are some of their so-called coping mechanisms do you think so there's two ways that people go about it there are the healthy coping mechanisms which is what people should be you know encouraging such as exercising reaching out i think the most important is definitely reaching out finding resources even uh, like getting treatments um there are so many uh positive ways to cope with poor mental health um even like the small things that aren't really small like you know sleeping regularly eating regularly um maintaining you know a good social life like just seeing your friends making time like Connecting. hanging out with family exactly but then there's also the bad coping mechanisms that um are re- often overlooked mm-hmm. and i think um you can group it under the term self sabotage so it can it's really like it often flies over people's heads sometimes it's just talking down on yourself like oh i'm so stupid or i can't do this or you know such small things and phrases that people would think oh you know it's just jokes but it really changes a lot like it really transforms your mindset how you speak about yourself talking down on yourself it can be purposefully hanging out with people who you know are bad for you but you're still you know drawn to that yeah you're still drawn to them mm-hmm. you're still like investing time into those friendships that you know you're not benefiting from and then it can go as far as physical self-harm or substance abuse or you know all these things that are very hush hush stigmatized like let's not talk about it but it's a very big issue that and unfortunately because of that stigma and that silence that those behaviors just continue to exactly. thrive and you know and people become more and more secretive about it you know more mm-hmm. and more risky behaviors all the time and yeah. I, i'm kind of curious what you do or what you have done in the past to look after your own mental health have you got any kind of tips and tricks that you try and do daily or things that you like to weave into your life judy i wish it was daily <laughs> me too i wish it was daily i think especially teens teens have um struggle a little bit more with consistency mm-hmm. um uh, but just things such as you know like taking a mental health walk or um asking your friends how are you doing and i feel like often especially amongst teens you can kind of see like oh i'm not really doing that well oh same and you know just that you know seeing that you're not alone and you have someone who's very close to you who you know understands exactly what you're going through or even like talking to my mom talking to my dad um and exercising and sometimes it can be a bad thing but sleeping as well taking <laughs> <laughs> listen science has proven teen <laughs> needs more sleep than any other age group so you sleep now you've also 
had had a really amazing creative outlet as well. And you started a brand in a community called Stay Alive. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, so Stay Alive started off as a campaign. I'm an IB student, so um, part of our diploma is completing this um, project kind of like a passion project it's called the cast project and um it started off as me and a couple of my friends in my school we were like let's raise some money and donate it to mental health and also raise money and raise awareness and we did a bake sale and then we made a hoodie and then we started going to events and it just kind of like quickly quickly spiraled you make it sound so easy and then we made a hoodie (laughs) how do you make a hoodie (laughs) so um a good friend of mine who has designed a lot of the um well most of the collections um uh we basically just sit down and we you know do some sketches look through pinterest you know see what we like what we don't like and then we kind of just send it over and we get the manufactured here as well but i think you know saying oh we made a hoodie you know like i feel like it it was so fun like i was never oh now i have to like send this and do budget like budget planning and like these charts and that you were fired up about it Hmm? You were excited and fired yeah, up about it. Yeah, I'm so. I was so excited. I'm still like. I just. I love You're talking beaming. about it. You're beaming. <laughs> and there's also a charitable aspect as well. You're donating yeah. some money to the Dubai Foundation for Women and Children Psychological Correct. Services, which I think yes. is incredible. What are your hopes for the future of the brand? What do you, What would you like to see happen for Stay Alive down the line? So I'm in my senior year of high school, so I am going to take a little break and focus on my studies da- and my Dad exams. in the green room, I can tell, is probably very happy about you saying that on the radio. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I do want to put, uh, now that, you know, I'm kind of like wrapping things up a little bit and going on a small hiatus so I can focus on things, I want to... Get uh, donate a little bit more of the money and um, what we were planning to do with the collection that we just released is putting some of the profits towards sponsoring teens to complete first aid mental health training Amazing. that um, Lighthouse Arabia it's a course that they provide so I think that's what I'm going to do I'm gonna get some teens to do that and kind of in through the platform that we have encourage more people to do it and um, I'm going to go on a small break um, work on some projects hopefully that I'll start up Come, um, come back fired up. What about you hopefully. then, senior year? What are you, what are you hoping for your own future? I don't want to say career, but you know, what, <laughs> a little what, bit early what, for what, that. Yeah, exactly. But what's on the vision board? Um, so I'm planning to stay here for university, and as of now, the plan is to study architecture. So wow. I just started my um, applications for uh, universities here. Um, we'll see what happens well but, I can yeah. tell there's determination in those eyes but <laughs> I just have to say how amazing I think you are to be 17 and thinking you know outside of the academics Thank you, you don't so want to know what I was doing in my spare time <laughs> at 17 Judy but let's just say I wasn't I wasn't thinking about the community's mental health but um, I think it's amazing for anyone that does want to find out a little bit more check out the brand shop the brand you know really support what you're up to what's the best way of getting in touch um, at Stay Alive DXB on Instagram and StayAlive.me Middle East on, yeah, just, just find it. StayAlive.me. If you do want that link, by all means, drop me a little line. I'd be very happy to connect you on 4001. Judy, happy World Mental Health Day. Happy World Mental Health Day. <laughs> Thank Have you for having one. me. Life Balance on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. World Mental Health Day is here. This is a day observed all around the world to raise awareness about the significance of mental wellness. And according to the World Health Organization, this day offers an opportunity really for those working on mental health issues to speak about their work. And I guess for us, the rest of us, to reflect on how we're feeling and take action if we feel like it needs to be needs to be taken and perhaps 
look someone in the eye and ask that question, how are you, and really mean it and really listen to the answer. In the last few years, the World Health Organization and actually several international organizations have acknowledged the importance of mental health in achieving global development goals. So really thinking about that global scale, depression, the leading cause of disability, suicide, the fourth leading cause of death amongst those in the 15 to 29 year age group. So please do get in touch if you need any assistance. As you know, we've got a raft of experts on the show throughout the afternoon and throughout the week as well. And joining us now, I'm delighted to be speaking to Dr. Margaret Muller, a mental health coach, an author, a businesswoman, and yes, the Falcon Doctor for the UAE and beyond. Um, so I guess my question to you as I look at you through the camera, Dr. Margaret, is how are you today? I'm wonderful. It's so beautiful to be on your show again. And uh, I think it's a very important topic. And yes, this is the right question. How are you to ask people this question? Because we're so programmed and conditioned to do the very fine. Yep, fine. And sometimes that's absolutely appropriate. We don't want to be oversharing our mental health issues, you know, at the beginning of a presentation or in, in, in the coffee queue. But to our friends, I think, to have that vulnerability and to know where we can go to for support, whether it's professional or friendship or family, is is so crucial. So I would love, if you wouldn't mind, to ask you perhaps to be a little bit vulnerable, Dr. Morgan, and explain a little bit about you and your background, because I've read that your mother had significant mental health problems that overshadowed your childhood. Could you tell us a bit more? Yes, that's correct. And uh, actually, my mother suffered from schizophrenia, uh, she got sick when I was only eight years old. And of course, it has overshadowed my childhood because I had to grow up really very, very fast because the disease really changed everything in our family life. And also, it was extremely difficult at that time. Uh, later on and over time, I came to understand that it was really a gift that my mother gave me because it helped me to become stronger, to become more resilient and to get a different understanding and much more compassion towards mental health and mental health issues, disorders and illnesses. And we often feel that it is such a stigma. I mean, even um, several years back, I wasn't able to talk about it because until today, the stigma of mental illness is so strong in our society, in all cultures, all societies. And it is very hard for the person uh, herself, but also for the environment, let's say friends, family members, to talk about a mental disease. Mm -hmm. And that's why days like today are so extremely important that we are able to understand when we have a physical illness, we can go to a doctor. But when we have a mental illness, we feel shy, we feel shame, we feel the stigma. Yeah. So it is time to change that. And um, because the disease of my mother was so severe, uh, the impact it had was really, really massive. And it has certainly shaped my life. But, and I think that's the most important point, it didn't define me. Mm -hmm. It has defined my life. It has defined how I grew up. But in the same time, it made me a much stronger, much more resilient person. And we should not just always look at the downside, but also that there can be an opportunity arise from all of this. And it doesn't mean it's the end of the world. Thank you for that. I think that's, I mean, that's incredible wisdom that, that you're sharing there. And I think with an awful lot of probably self-work and time and, and, and hindsight, and that's something you are now paying forward to other people through through your work as a mental health coach. And I wondered, Dr. Margaret, what, what are people coming to you with? What are some of the concerns or issues that clients are, are opening up about and, and sharing about here in the UAE? 
Now, actually, in the beginning, it was more like um, having problems with their life in general. So they didn't know which way to go. They felt too much stressed out. They were not able yeah, to really find their own way. They felt there was something wrong with their life, how it's going. And when I had more of those clients and I really tried to guide them on the right way and to really also help them to improve their mental health, because this is what mental health coaching is doing. Mm -hmm. It is helping people with mental health concerns that are non-clinical, which means those clients are still able to function in normal life. Also, there is a, an impact on them, on their mental health, but they still can do their work because that's the difference between clinical illness that requires treatment, for example, psychopharmaca, they need to go to a psychiatrist or they need to have a hospital stay. But over time, when I had more clients, it came back to <laughs> my original topic, actually, this topic of helping people to go through their childhood trauma because they had parents with mental illness. And that's what I'm specializing in now, because a lot of our mental health concerns and issues are coming from a trauma in our childhood mm -hmm. that has never been accessed, that has never been processed, but that really affects us in our daily life, in our relationships, even with partners and spouses, not just with the family. And it can make life very difficult for us. So it is essential to really try to help to heal this trauma because only then we are able to live a life that's, yeah, that's, better for us that's what it's meant to be mm. and that relieves us from this yeah subconscious problem because childhood trauma is in your subconscious mind you don't feel it until you really start to access it and a lot of people have this but because also it is a stigma and nobody's talking about it people often don't know that this is the root cause even of their relationship problems of their problems at work so we have to start to access those issues and then we can live much better lives and more yeah, more resilient, and, and much better ones. And perhaps break a cycle that's been going on in families for, for generations. Life Balance on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. It was in 1994 that World Mental Health Day was celebrated for the first time with a specific theme. Then it was improving the quality of mental health services throughout the world. And the theme for this year is make mental health and well-being for all a global priority. We are talking mental health this afternoon with Dr. Margaret Muller. She's a mental health coach, an author, a businesswoman, and is also known in the animal field as the falcon doctor for the UAE and beyond. She's on hand to answer my questions and yours. And I've got an, an animal question for you, actually. No name on, on this message. Saying, my sister has been quite depressed over the last uh, two years and she's got a three-year-old dog. He's still very young, but I feel like he's picked up on her depression. He doesn't act like a young dog. He's very sensitive. So even though he has been good for her and a comfort, could it be also affecting him? Could you pick, be picking up on that energy and, and illness to an extent, Dr. Margaret? It's a brilliant question, actually. Yes, pets can pick up from our, let's say, moods, from the problems that we have. But it doesn't mean that the dog will become depressed. It's actually the opposite. The dog understands that... The owner has some kind of problems and they can sense this problem. So whenever, for example, the lady goes more into these kind of depressive mood swings or depression, the dog will try to do its best to get her out of it. And that's why it looks like this dog 
yeah, acts mm. older than its actual age. But it means, and this is the very important thing, it doesn't mean it is negative for the dog. It means this dog is really able to do something for its owner. And that's why pets are just so amazing, mm -hmm. especially for people with mental health concerns, because they are able to understand us and they are able to get this out that yeah, people sometimes even cannot feel, they cannot sense. And in this case, this dog actually is there to help the owner. Oh, and that's beautiful. the beauty of it. So I would always recommend whenever you have, you feel lonely, or even if you have some kind of mental health concerns, it is good. And actually, I know this from my mother. We had a dog when she was really yeah, on the peak of her, her illness. And this dog helped her so much because whenever she was going into yeah, her different world, the dog would come to give the paw, put the paw on her knee and try to let her go for a walk. So actually it helped so much. So that's amazing. And that's why I would really recommend it. It's the best thing you can have. Because it does give you a sense of purpose of looking outside of yourself, of feeding and caring, yes. even talking. I mean, we first we got our kind of first dog when I was about 12. And I remember the lady we got it from, um, this is back in the UK, saying, and she said it, she took me aside, actually, away from my family and said, you know, if you ever feel like you want to share something, but you don't want to tell your mum or dad, you know, this dog is always going to be there for you to talk to. And I was like, well, actually, that's that's quite lovely. Um, can I ask you, doctor, what are some of the things that you do every day to look after your mental health now? Actually, since I really started my mental health journey in a very conscious way, not like before, I have changed the way how I do things. I'm also a mindfulness practitioner. What I'm doing now, I try to take some regular breaks throughout my day. There are even some apps like Inside Timer apps where you can put a time like every three, four hours. It mm -hmm. gives you a ringing tone just to break that cycle of work, of stress. So I do some breathing exercises. It's simply breathing in and out. But because you are in this very moment and you are really just focusing on your own breath, you break the cycle of stress. This helps immensely. Uh, then I'm doing also some specific meditations. There are mindfulness meditations that you can do, which are addressing special concerns like, for example, anxiety or stress or even loving kindness meditations that you love yourself more or you accept yourself more, which is beautiful. And I try to have my regular sleeping times. That's extremely important for mental health, mm -hmm. regular meals. And I'm doing every day my exercise, at least half an hour sport. And of course, I'm surrounded by my animals. <laughs> and this is my me time. Good. Good. <laughs> so it helps. It helps just really to talk to them and to play with them. Because even when you just, yeah, caress your pet for five minutes, you will excrete hormones like dopamine, like endorphin, uh, like oxytocin, these are happy hormones, love hormones, and they make us immediately feel better. And this is also improving our mental health. Now, we often talk about work on a Monday, getting everyone in the right frame of mind for the week ahead. And I wondered, well, apart from ticking the odd box on, you know, the mental health sheet from HR, what can companies be doing to actually promote mental health wellness in their employees and, and what responsibility do you think they have doctor i think companies have a very very big responsibility also some of them are not yet aware of that but it is very important to create a workplace that 
really provides their employees with the best possible opportunities to work in a safe work environment mm -hmm. without bullying, without the kind of toxic work environment where somebody is backstepping you, and really to give also your employees the, the opportunity to work according to their abilities, but also to check in with them if, for example, they feel overloaded because maybe another colleague doesn't do enough work and they get overloaded from this kind of work. So to create a workplace that provides each employee with the right work environment, with yeah acceptance, uh, proper surroundings, this will increase profitability because it is enhancing the performance of the staff. It is enhancing their work output. And like this, in the end, if companies take care of their mental, the mental health of their employees, in the end, they can benefit from it. <laughs> I, th I, think, I think that's what a lot of... You know, a lot of people do forget that, yes, it is a wonderful thing to be able to offer that and have support in place. But people aren't doing it just to be nice. They're doing it because they want to be looking at their health insurance policies. They want to be looking at productivity because we know that healthy, happy workforce is a productive workforce. And I do feel like we have made some strides to having mental health conversations at work. But as you alluded to earlier, there's still a huge amount of stigma around. If you could wave a magic wand, Dr. Margaret, and make every workplace do something or change something, try something, what would you like to see put in place? What I would like to see put in place is, first of all, better working conditions, which means uh, that this kind of toxic work environment stops, like backstepping or bullying the people. But also what I think is very important to create a culture of yeah, mental health awareness. For example, to have, let's say, once in a week, even just 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes, some kind of mindfulness, uh, some kind of pleasing exercises that everybody can do together. This will enhance the overall teamwork, but also it lets the employees understand that, first of all, it's good for them. Mm -hmm. They learn how to do it. And in the end, they can really improve their work. And things like that, or even during the day, just to give them, let's say, five minutes, let's say during the lunch break, just to focus on something like that can make a change and it can have a very positive impact. And I always say, yes, everybody has time to go for lunch or at least to, to take the washroom break. Take two or three minutes additionally <laughs> and do something good for you as a self-care, at least some breathing exercises. And if companies would, ro would roll this out throughout the whole company to say every day we have just five or ten minutes where we are doing these kind of practices, it will change the work environment. And, it'll, and, and by weaving that into the conversation, I would hope people would feel more comfortable to come forward if they were facing some more significant mental health problems. Dr. Margaret, thank you so much for your time. And um, we've had a couple of messages asking, where can we find you? Um, it's coachformentalhealth.com and at the Falcon Hospital in Abu Dhabi as well. Two very separate hats that you wear there. Dr. Margaret Muller, thank you so much for your time and happy World Mental Health Day. Life Balance on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Now, the workplace was initially designed for men um, and the last few years have perhaps only served to reinforce that notion. It is why women across the world are leaving corporate, opting to be their own boss and also why it's so important for allies to educate themselves on the reason why. So how can corporate workplaces be more inclusive for women, especially for mothers, to better attract talent into or 
back into the workplace. Julie Nugent is the founder of Crunch Moms. It's a community and a professional networking platform for women. And they are having a two-day summit later this week. So, Julie, I really do appreciate your time. I know it's all all hands on deck at the minute ahead of the summit. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. And no, you're so welcome. And I think it's really interesting to hear about some of the topics you are going to be touching on at the summit, because this is very much in line with some of the very real concerns and challenges that your community are facing. Yeah, so we have this two-day summit that's taking place this week. Crunch Moms is very much around a personal pain point that I experienced of, you know, balancing work while, you know, being a new mother mm-hmm. and now a mother of two. And the more women I spoke to, the more I realized we're not in it alone. Um, we built a community that is very much around supporting women in the workplace. And we saw that there are many areas that we can support women, which mm-hmm. we call brush up, work up, start up. So brush up are the women that took time out of the job market. They want to gain new skills, network, and essentially land a job. Work up are the women that are still juggling that corporate role and that household. And startup are women are leaving to be their own bosses and have their own flexibility and still work. Um, so that's what we're, we're all needed. We're going to be speaking to Rita soon, who has started something of a side hustle alongside her corporate job and really what, what her company was able to offer her, which I think sounds quite unusual. So I'm intrigued to find out a little bit more about that. But what are some of the practical challenges that you're hearing from women in the community, Julie, about getting back into work after a long time or perhaps, you know, maybe even for the first time? Yeah, so I think it's the reason people are leaving. It's a very personal experience, right? A personal reason for why they're not going back immediately. And if they do, I think you kind of lose that confidence after X number of years of being out. Mm. Skill sets, you know, you have to really brush up on the sales skill sets and then grow your network. This place is just evolving so quickly. So I think it's really needed that they need a community and to understand what skill sets and what people are hiring in. So I think that's why it's really important to kind of network as much as possible so that you can um, be around like-minded women that are, are going back or that continue to still work. And I think what's really important is to look for um, the people that you're wanting to work with. So look at the employer. What is the culture like? Um, how are they? Are they flexible in their work life? Um, is it something that your line manager is going to be understanding of your situation? So I think... The pandemic has pushed out a lot of women in the workplace. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> the, We've heard it before. There was a, to, to, borrow, to borrow part of your, your name, there was a real kind of crunch moment when people were looking at long-term distance learning. Not so much here because I think we, we had a relatively short amount of time compared to other parts of the world where it was just impossible to be able to work from home and do a full-time job while supervising one, two, three children who were also needing to be engaged in their schoolwork and being being educated and as you say as a result of that there was a lot of women leaving the workplace or having to do some really hard sums and saying do you know what I'm not the main breadwinner here and unfortunately my career is going to have to go on pause for well dot dot dot. Yeah exactly and I think also some I think it took this pandemic for employers and companies to also have to change you know mm. it's about you know they often say that women and um, individuals have to change for the workplace. But I think this time around, the workplace had to change for what was going on and also understanding the situation of mm-hmm. many parents. And so by offering that flexibility, it kind of even the level playing field for a lot of individuals um, in the corporate world. I'm glad you said parents there and not just not just mums, yeah. because I think that's it's so key. And when we think about flexible work and we do think, oh, it's it's for the mums. It's not. It really is for everybody. It's for it's for dads, but it could be for carers. It could be for those who might have health conditions and need to be able to get out to go to appointments or, you know, work better at certain times of day. And I don't know how much flexibility has been this kind of legacy because, 
you know, I, I have very fixed schedule. I can't work. I tried, I tried to do the show from home twice during proper lockdown. Doesn't work. Disaster. <laughs> Disaster. Because, of course, I was online shopping with everybody else. My dogs were going crazy and my husband was around. It was a disaster. So I've been, you know, my, my job is not flexible in the sense that I am here. So I'm not really plugged into what's happening around but, the UAE. So do you feel like, you know, some people are keeping on some of that, you know, two or three days from home or we trust you. You have proven yourself. You do not need to have your bum on an office seat to actually do this job. Yeah. So I really, I mean, at least from what I'm hearing from the community, it really depends on the organization, right? So the multinational companies, I think they've just adapted that flexibility um, here in the region and understanding that, you know, as long as the work gets done, it gets done. Um, um, I think what's really important is that people are able to set boundaries. Like I now do pick up from X, you know, from this time to this time. And then no matter what, I will get the work done. So I think that's really important. I think what you're seeing as well is um, a lot of the companies here are, are realizing how important it is and they're creating the right space within their within their company. Because I think it's all about the boundaries that you set. So if you want to go into the workplace, you have the option to do that two, three times a week, and you have the option to work remotely or work from anywhere. And as you mentioned, it's not always the most productive when it's from home. So sometimes you want that flexibility or that option. And I think that's what it's all about. And I think in the corporate world, um, it's important to just make sure that you have the right facilities for, um, let's say in this case for women, you know, if they're breastfeeding, um, having the right space is so important. You wouldn't eat your lunch in a toilet, so don't make your baby. Life Balance on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. It is all about life balance this afternoon and talking about women in the workplace, getting into the workplace, staying in the workplace, leaving the workplace, having a side hustle as well. Julie Wynn is with us. She is the founder of Crunch Moms. It's a community and professional networking platform for women. They are having a two-day summit later this week and touching on many of the topics we're talking about today and also joining us in the studio now is a member of that community. Rita Ogavsabian is with us, group head of R&D for a large FMCG, but also a bit of a side hustler as well. Your new company's launched just last week? Yeah. You're looking very bright-eyed for someone who's got a full-time job and a side hustle. How are you, Rita? Good makeup. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to my world. How did you first meet Julie? What was the connection there with Crunch Moms? Uh, So actually, I was just uh, going back from uh, maternity leave. And uh, it's basically Instagram ads, you know, Uh, And usually I wouldn't seek going into a network because I'm a massive introvert myself. But the message resonated that taking mom talk to the next level, uh, supporting entrepreneurs. And I already had seen the idea of Borev in my mind and I wanted to see how others are doing it. I want to learn new things. Um, So really it resonated with me. And as soon as, you know, I gathered the courage and when they did the first talk, I thought this was exactly what I was looking for. Julie, you're uh, beaming at this. I uh, started natural posts and mm-hmm. on Instagram that, you know, we attracted exactly the kind of person that we wanted to help. And yeah. I think that's it. Is it, it, it. Whatever your needs are, there is going to be hopefully a tribe out there to support you. And even if it's just about listening and feeling listened to and supported, but also practical advice, feeling inspired um, and helping you kind of realize your dreams. But as I said, you're, you're group head of R&D. So how did you start to have the headspace to think about starting a side hustle? And how did that company feel about that when you started exploring the idea? So actually, uh, I had a very good experience at, at PNG. And I, when I came back from my maternity leave, they actually said... Um, 
that I could uh, do a four week, four days a week rather than five days a week. And I'm a strong supporter of the idea of a four days a week. Me too. And <laughs> they also, anyway, in the company values, they really support uh, women. And I've never felt any sort of... Uh, gendered inequality in my personal experience, obviously. And the other thing is, so I need, I really am passionate about my job of product development. And so Borev, the, the company that I founded, was really emerging from this need of mine of developing my own products uh, that are related to my personal experience with my son. Uh, you know, creating products that are really soft and breathable and sustainable and natural that parents would want to snuggle their kids in mm-hmm. was really something that I wanted to do. So it wasn't necessarily a reaction to my workplace, but more utilizing the experience I've had at PNG and using the flexibility that they're giving me to create something of my own. So were you, were you doing this in on that on that extra day then and I'm sure evenings and exactly so the extra day is super important for my you know we were talking mental health like you know having some me time but also creating this thing on my own and attending the talks so it worked perfectly for me and they really did not care when the work was being done as long as the work was being done and I think that's super important for mom the flexibility I agree I think that has been really hopefully a big positive to come out of the pandemic that you know you haven't needed to have that presenteeism of you know if you've got the right people in that role it doesn't really matter where they are to an extent I mean I would say pilots and surgeons it really does matter where they are (laughs) but for many people you know you could be in a cafe at home you could have baby on your lap um Julie we've got we've got I can squeeze in a minute of chat and get people excited about what's in store for this week so for anyone that's not familiar with the Crunch Moms Summit. Uh, what's in store? Yeah, so it's two days. Um, there's a morning edition and an evening edition, and it caters to startups, small business owners, entrepreneurs, corporate world, career women. And it's panel talks that are talking about the subject that is what we're all about. It's the region's first summit focused on women, motherhood, and careers. And we're going to tackle this together with a very open and honest dialogue. And we have some master classes and some speed networking along the way. Well, both thank you for making time for coming in today as <laughs> seriously two of the busiest women I think ever. I um, really do appreciate it. And what's the best way of finding out more and signing up, Julie? Yes, crunchmoms.com backslash summit. There you go. Enjoy it. And for anyone that wants to find out more about your product range, Rita, what's the best way of finding BoRev? So uh, on Instagram, bo.rev, R-E-V-E-S, which is Sweet Dreams, and our website, borev.com both really do appreciate it happy world mental health day all the very best with the uh, with the summit coming up thank you and uh can't wait to see what all unfold life balance on afternoons with helen farmer this afternoon we are discussing gender inclusivity here in the region and beyond and who better to speak to then than linda savarini she is a gender consultant and auditor from nama women advancement established in sharjah now i haven't heard of this establishment so i'm very keen linda to get a bit of a read on what the function of NAMA is. Can you tell us a little bit more from the outset? Yes. Hi, Helen. So uh, NAMA was founded in uh, 2015 by His uh, Highness Dr. Uh, Sheikh Sultan bin Mohammed al-Qasimi, ruler of Sharjah, and uh, is chaired by uh, his wife, Sheikha uh, Jawahir. Um, And the main idea of uh, NAMA is to mobilize uh, all possible resources in order to create 
um, an enabling environment to empower women, mainly socially and economically. So uh, they operate through different affiliates. Uh, They have uh, their own programming uh, department. However, they have also affiliates such as uh, the Sharjah Business Women Council and uh, Irithi uh, Contemporary um, uh, Crafts Council. So this is how they operate. Can I ask you, what does a gender consultant in order to do? Well, a gender uh, consultant uh, does something and a gender auditor does something (laughs) else. So let's start with, uh, (laughs) yes, I do both. So the gender auditor uh, is there to support private and public sector and any entity of any kind, uh, draw the baseline of where they stand in terms of integration of gender equality within their guidelines, practices, policies and procedures uh, and uh, organizational culture. So it's not an audit uh, where uh, there are uh, punishments or um, no, it's it's a learning journey. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is the beauty of uh, gender auditing. It's a learning journey whereby we support um, the entities know where they stand and project into the future and support them have an action plan. Uh, a gender consultant supports with uh, building capacities uh, um, uh, about uh, gender concepts, uh, about uh, best practices, supporting in the designs of uh, action plans uh, that are gender inclusive, uh, trainings, etc. So these are the two main aspects of the work I do. Linda, can I ask you, how seriously do you feel like companies are taking gender inclusivity in this region specifically, which is obviously where you're working now? Yes, well, um, it is um, moving in the right direction. Uh, a lot still needs to be done. Uh, however, uh, I, I can give you a, a brief uh, uh, about uh, in the MENA region, or let's say the Arab states, which covers the MENA region and the GCC, um, women uh, participation in the labor market is at its lowest in the world. Lowest, yes. Um, And uh, they are at the highest in taking uh, unpaid uh, care Mm -hmm. at home. And uh, although uh, this is what we call the paradox of education, because uh, women in this region are educated, yet this is not reflected in their participation in the labor market. Um, We're moving in the right direction. More and more uh, companies are having internal policies that might not always be supported by labor law reforms because this is where it needs to start. Uh, So um, let's say if policymakers are not doing what should be done at the right speed, uh, companies are taking that into their own hands, into Mm -hmm. their own internal guidelines and practices and having more inclusive uh, gender um, uh, practices that promote women, uh, whether in leadership positions or um, in the labour market uh, as a whole. That's incredible to me that you've got this huge untapped resource of, as you're saying, educated women. What are some of the big barriers or challenges that you have identified for those women actually being in the workforce? Uh, The main and the most important is unpaid care because uh, they are the ones who uh, take mostly uh, the responsibility of unpaid care. Uh, Labour laws are not in uh, supporting women. Uh, Women do not get get equal pay for equal work, uh, which means uh, if one of the the two uh, partners or spouses uh, need to make a decision of who stays at home, automatically it's the woman. Uh, because, uh, you know, uh, partners, male partners or husbands um, make much higher income. They usually have fringe benefits that women don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yes, mainly labor laws and um, unpaid care. 
So when it comes to consulting with companies, and I don't want you, I, I do want you to name names, but we're not allowed to. What are some of the worst practices you have seen? Um, and we don't necessarily need to be talking about the region specifically. You've worked internationally as well. But where have you seen some some howlers? Well, uh, um, you might be shocked, but one of the... Um The most practices uh, that shock us as a gender auditor when we go into a company and when we draw their attention to it, they're, they're in the aha moment, is that uh, scheduling uh, after hours meetings or retreats uh, during weekends. This puts women uh, in unfavorable positions at work in front of their managers and uh, they start raising eyebrows because um, especially in this part of the world, not every working uh, mom uh, has uh, support at home, uh, whether uh, extended family, a supporting husband or spouse or, um, you know, um, nannies or mm -hmm. childcare. Mm -hmm. So... This is a huge challenge and a lot of companies don't pay attention to it. Uh, another issue also is that, uh, for example, uh, women, um, the time they take off in terms of their maternity leaves, um, these days that usually accumulate in two months uh, are removed from their total uh, years of experiences, again, making women at a disadvantage in comparison of uh, years of expertise in comparison uh, to, to, to males. And then we have the main thing of unpaid, uh, unequal pay for equal jobs. Mm -hmm. So these are uh, the, the main things. But also what we look in terms of uh, gender auditing, we look into the extent by which um, entities have anti-sexual harassment policies. Uh, more and more entities are developing them. They are usually embedded in the code of conduct, but for companies and entities who want to do more, they develop a standalone anti-harassment policy because it doesn't only cover workers, it also covers the public if you are an entity that works with the public. And it's not just about having that code of conduct or that policy, it's about communicating it exactly. and making it clear what your expectations are of your employees and of your team. And, and I hope... That workforce understanding that this is a very serious priority and for very good reason. What about best practices? What, what are you seeing, whether it's internationally or within the region, that you feel like is doing an incredible job to support women in the workplace, to be truly inclusive and, and you know, to kind of steal Nama's word there about advancement of women? So um, I will start by giving an example and then uh, shed the light on an initiative that Nama really uh, works on in terms of integrating women in the, in the workplace. So uh, firstly, something that is a, a very nice practice that is taking place uh, in this part of the world are paternity leaves. Yay! Because uh, paternity leaves, um, when we talk about gender inclusiveness in the workplace, we don't only talk about women. It's not a women's issue. It takes a village. So we need also partners and husbands to take their own responsibility and role into uh, childcare. So uh, giving paternity uh, leaves supports women going back to uh, work uh, in shorter time periods, knowing that the child is being cared after uh, by the father. Now, uh, Nama has a very interesting um, initiative called uh, Irtiqa. Uh, this initiative works on um, 
strictly working with the private sector and public sector, if they're interested, into integrating uh, gender equality and women into uh, the workplace. So they work on three aspects. The first aspect is uh, supporting the learning journey of uh, those entities and identifying where they stand through a toolkit they had developed with specific and clear recommendations. Uh, it also uh, works on raising the awareness and knowledge through series of uh, workshops, a series of roundtable uh, uh, meetings uh, in order to reach all stakeholders and make them understand the importance of gender inclusiveness in the workplace. Uh, it also seeks to create a network uh, whereby there are exchanges of knowledge uh, between what they would call ambassadors of uh, change, um, whereby entities learn from each other. There, It creates a network. So this initiative, um, we really recommend uh, if your entity is interested uh, to inquire more uh, about the Irtiqa initiative uh, by contacting NAMA. And lastly, a question here from Nina on the text line saying, what do you do if you're concerned about practices within the company? Do you go to HR? Is it a manager? Or is there an authority you can inform? It's a really good question because I think there's, you know, we can talk about data and we can talk about, we you know, what's happening. But for anyone listening today who thinks, do you know what, there's some red flags here that I perhaps have been choosing to ignore or hadn't been educated about. What do you tend to recommend for making sure a company is made aware of any imbalances? Yes, so it will depend uh, whether or not it's uh, malpractices whereby there are biases or it's an infringement of uh, law or, as we said, if it's something that affects your personal safety in terms of harassment that can take all forms, sexual, uh, physical, uh, verbal uh, harassment. So... um, First thing is usually um, more and more uh, a good practice, more and more entities uh, in, uh, in the UAE have uh, what they call an inclusion unit. So maybe uh, if you have an inclusion unit in your uh, entity, uh, I would recommend uh, that, uh, you know, uh, you kind of consult with them, uh, checking what uh, type of procedures and mechanisms are in place for you to follow the exact same, uh, the exact appropriate uh, channels. Uh, however, I would always recommend that you speak up because you don't only speak up for yourself, you always speak up for other women uh, with you. And the men, be an ally as well. We need, as I said, it takes a village. Um, when we talk about gender equality, it's not about, uh, let's say, um, a Game of Thrones. It's uh, It's a journey whereby both have, um, let's say, um, equal rights, roles and opportunities. This is the part everyone forgets. Everyone thinks about gender equality as equal rights and responsibilities, but the main and most important is equal opportunities. Thank you so, so much, Linda. Really interesting to hear that and hear what's been happening there at NAMA. But you've got some workshops and activations coming up. What's the best way of getting in touch and finding out more? Well, uh, contacting NAMA. Uh, NAMA is very uh, present on uh, all uh, social media platforms. They are very responsive uh, to their uh, their email. Um, we have a variety of uh, programs. We support, uh, NAMA supports uh, programming in uh, the United Arab Emirates, Kenya, Pakistan, Iraq, uh, South Africa. They partner with uh, entities uh, and community-based organizations. They uh, partner with uh, other UN entities such as UN Women. They had a great initiative with UN Women uh, promoting uh, gender um, responsive procurement 
and um, it is strongly present uh, here in the UAE. So, yes, uh, just reach out um, to learn more and uh, we can see how we can cater for your needs. Thank you so much. Really interesting to hear some of the data and hear, as I said, what's been going on. And if you do want uh, Linda's details, find out more about NAMA, uh, drop me a little line. Linda Sabarini, Gianni Consulted and Auditor. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so, so much. Thank you very much, much, Helen. Life Balance on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Fantastic to have you with us. It is one of the busiest hours on your radio. Your free legal clinic, Ludmilla Malava from HPL, Malava and Pluka, standing by. Ready as we delve behind the headlines, but also go to the text line. So if you do have any questions, concerns, maybe want an expert second opinion, this is your opportunity to get advice for free and anonymously if you prefer, by the way. And Ludmilla, it's always a busy one, but I feel like today is going to be particularly busy because there's a lot going on. Hot off the press, new birth certificate law. I mean, I'm not getting the Dubai rumour mill going, but I'm, I'm not planning on needing a new birth certificate for any future farmer offspring. But <laughs> what is the latest? It is a, a huge, a huge news for us, these legal practitioners. Um, so it is in, indeed a new law that um, uh, was published in the Official Gazette, which we received two days. So effectively, it's uh, become at least public as of today. And the law comes into effect um, uh, uh, basically a month from the time it was issued, which was uh, the law itself was issued September 15th, so October mm-hmm. 15th. Now, it is a, a fairly substantive um, legislation and change to the previous uh, legislation, which uh, had previously been put in, in, in um, I guess, pu- publication in 2009. So this is the first time we're seeing that particular law be amended. So from 2009 until 2022, uh, so it's mm-hmm. 13 years later. Can you give us give us the top line, Ludmilla? I know you'll have been looking through it and it probably would go yes. right over my head. But let's it's, let's assume two scenarios. One is you're pregnant now and you're about to give birth. Two is, is there anything people who have children and are not planning to have any more need to be aware of in terms of amending or reissuing? So you're about to give birth. What's changed? What do you need to do? Well, it changed in particular for those who either are not necessarily married or who's... Uh, uh, birth uh, or oh, marriage certificate is less than six months validity from the time that they were married to the time that the baby is born. Because previously, under the previous legislation, in those cases, you required a court um, court order in order to uh, qualify for a birth uh, certificate, uh, which obviously would take time and in itself it requires a court proceeding. Now, at a very high level, uh, if the couple, as long as the parents are both there, uh, and uh, with with or without a marriage certificate, they will be able to obtain through an administrative process a birth certificate. So it's no longer required for in that particular case to wow. require uh, to have a court order. That's huge. That is huge indeed. And then another scenario is if if the father, for example, is unknown, uh, it is now a fairly an, an expedited. There's still a court order that's required, but an expedited and a very specific or expressly stated document that needs to be requested through um, through the court or against an administrative request. Uh, and But in the meantime, the hospitals are required to issue what's called a birth notification, which is the document before the birth certificate. Because in the past, uh, hospitals would hold back on issuing birth notifications, particularly for people where either there was no marriage certificate or where the father was unknown. 
Now, this particular law says that birth notifications must be issued without the need for any presentation, any other documents or, or any other requirements. So truly it's huge. We can talk about it all um, all day, but I guess for the time of the purpose of, of today's update, perhaps that would suffice. So wow. in other words, a lot uh, will be a lot easier and faster to obtain birth uh, certificate um, than it was before. So how about this then? Single, single mothers or women, say, who come to Dubai and want to start a family through whatever means they choose. Could you be a single mother, get a birth certificate without a father's name? I'm just thinking in super simple terms. Absolutely, yes. And, and the law specifically provides for that when you have the father um, unknown. Uh, so um, there's, it's, it's a it's an simplified process of just obtaining a document for the purposes of receiving uh, a birth certificate. And then and, and in all of that, basically by virtue of the way the law is drafted, indicates that the process will will take place just a matter of a few weeks because the birth um, uh, the birth the issuance of the birth certificate has to be done within three months after the birth so this and the indication is such that the authorities have the mandate to act expeditiously and have these documents issued uh, rather fast there you go the times they are are changing. Ludmilla Malava on hand to help us unpick the headlines. And if there's something you'd like to learn more about those birth certificate announcements in particular, do get in touch. We've also had um, co-occupant, um, that DLD requirement, um, announcement of that recently. Um, any developments there or any anything else we need to know on that, Ludmilla? Yes, there's two updates. One, uh, last time we spoke about it, there was a deadline of two weeks from the time uh, the the circular was issued to register. Now that deadline has been removed and there's just sort of ongoing requirement or encouragement for people to register. And so there's no more deadline. That's one update. The other one is that in the past, the mandate specified that you need to include uh, the specific details of all the occupants, including their Emirates ID and their their, uh, date of birth. Uh, Now, as of the updated mandate, that's no longer required. You just need to indicate how many occupants you have in the property. However, from what we've seen, at least the suggestion is that those who wish to indicate their personal details, in particular uh, Emirates ID and such, will be able to obtain a copy of a jari that will have that uh, information reflected. So, for Mm -hmm. example, this document would be helpful for those who... Uh, are not on the lease per se yes. uh, because they're just occupants, but not the party to the contract. They, uh, the suggestion is that they'll be able to receive an updated Ajari certificate that will show them as occupants, and therefore they'll have a, an official document to present to the authorities in the event they need it. That's actually hugely helpful because I find myself in that situation a few times. It's my husband's name on the lease, and I've needed documents in terms of you know, proving who I am and where I live. So now that we are registered, and he did do my Emirates ID, like a like a good admin that he is, um, that's really interesting. Okay, Ludmilla, we're going to squeeze in a question. Um, Anonymous, and as I always say, if you'd rather be anonymous, it's absolutely fine, saying, asking on behalf of a close relative whose spouse has absconded, leaving two kids with him. Um, As per mutual friends, she's already living with another partner, despite still being married to someone else. What's the legal course that can be taken in this case? Given that the wife has already left the husband and two kids and living with another partner, a divorce case has already been filed back in the home country. Well, if all of this is happening in the UAE, even though the um, the mother is living, um, or, or even though the um, the divorce itself was filed outside of the UAE, there should be divorce proceedings that uh, that are filed within in the UAE. Because if all the parties live in the UAE, the UAE has jurisdiction over uh, over not just the parties but the marriage itself. Uh, so I would highly recommend to file divorce proceedings here. 
and because if the kids live here, you will need to have a, a local court order to be able to a claim custody of the of, of the children if this is what you wish to do. And since she, the mother has already abandoned the kids, it sounds like and is living elsewhere, you will um, most likely receive custody of the children. Uh, and, and ultimately, you need to have um, a, a final divorce decree showing that you uh, are not only divorced, but also have full custody of the children. And in the long run, basically, that's all you need in terms of trying to get back to the mother for having run away. I would, uh, from a practical standpoint, perhaps not recommend chasing that dragon, but rather focus on figuring out, uh, having some sort of finality to the relationship and making sure that you have full custody of the children uh, so that you have legal rights to and freedom to travel with them and to take care of them as, as you deem fit. Life Balance on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. If you've got any niggles, little niggles, or indeed big concerns, please don't hesitate to get in touch with Lamilia Malava from HPL. Lamalava and Pluka is standing by on Teams, sadly not in the studio this week, ready to take any worries that you might have across all areas of the law. We've had questions about custody, about rentals, about employment, and Rebecca called earlier. Hi there, I have a question regarding rent. So my lease expired um, middle of September and despite me agreeing three months prior to that the new price with the agent which was basically a five percent increase so I thought it was all you know done and dusted and anyway I never heard anything more so when it came to mid-September I got in touch to say hey look my lease is about to expire three weeks on the landlady's now come back and said well no I'm charging a lot more than that I'm charging a lot more than the five percent now I just don't believe she's got a leg to stand on because nothing was agreed in terms of a higher amount three months out and the agent and I agreed on a price I have the whatsapp messages as evidence of that so I'm, I just assumed that was going to be the new price I just need to know where I stand um, but what I'm more concerned about is essentially I'm living in a house at the moment where I don't have a rental contract so what do I do here interesting question at the minute Ludmilla prices going up what does Rebecca need to know and what does she need to do as she's saying she's currently in a property she hasn't gotten a rental agreement on but I mean I'm no lawyer I would say the law would be on your side in terms of the way this has gone down with the agent and the landlady. What say you? Yes, you've been listening uh, to a legal show for a long time. <laughs> I'm basically a vet, by the way, also after doing four years of animal programmes, just saying. <laughs> uh, many, uh, many talents. Uh, yes, yeah, so as you rightfully said, uh, then basically here really the obligation is, I guess, on in, in a way on both parties. Uh, you don't really need to do very much unless you want to. So now if you feel since you've had previously agreed to the increase, so contractually uh, all the terms remain the same or as per the agreement that you had reached with the, with the real estate agent uh, being the 5% increase. Now in terms of what to do next, it's really the obligation, the way is on the landlord to, um, uh, to give you the new lease uh, and to accept your payment. If you've tried to do this, ultimately the landlord has has uh, re refused, it sounds like, taking your payment. So, uh, you, I mean, you can continue living there as long as you've got evidence that you've tried to comply with your side of obligations and it's the landlord who refused. However, if you don't sleep well at night, which I imagine may be, may be the case because you don't have a signed contract or you don't have a renewed ejari, what you can do is you can file a, a case with RDC and you could do that all on the REST app. Uh, quite quite efficient and fairly uh, self-explanatory. And basically what you do is you request for the renewal of the jari, and you can also even deposit uh, the rent amount or at least show to the RDC that you try to deposit the rent amount 
so that you have um, a confirmation that you're not the one that are in default. Uh, and um, yeah, just to kind of help you manage expectations, a lot of uh, a lot of people think that if you deposit money with the uh, with RDC, that somehow it ends up with the landlord, and therefore you've done the obligation. I mean, you the, the obligation part is more or less okay, but in terms of the la uh, the RDC managing it, it's not so. It basically just um, uh, registers the fact that you have offered payment and that you got payment and it's just that and it gives the chance for the landlord to come forward and claim the payment if uh, the landlord does not claim the payment that you'll have to come back and take it back and basically wait for the landlord to come and accept your payment uh, so uh, but they can issue an order to have a new ejari uh, issued to you and, and therefore force renewable contract so that they can do and there's a fairly simple um service requests through the um, REST app, uh, which you may want to follow because otherwise I'm sure living in this kind of no man's land is a little mm -hmm. bit unsettling. Thanks, uh, but that's certainly the law and, and the is on your side and the process is fairly simple for you to guide yourself along. Okay, Rebecca, all the very best with that. Sounds like you've done everything so far, so keep up the good fight. Um, Kamala's been in touch following up about that registration saying, um, got a quick query for registering everyone living in a house. Is it just for tenants? We own our home. It's in my name. Do I need to register my husband and how do I do it? It. Uh, Ludmilla, it's a pretty, it's a very straightforward process. Can you give us a quick, quicker uh, rundown? It, yeah, it is. A, it is a pretty straightforward process. It's it's whoever lives in your house uh, on the regular basis. So that would include your your spouse and your children and your domestic help or whoever whatever other relatives that live there. Uh, on a full-time basis. Now, as the as per the previous mandate, you would actually go in and enter each one of those occupants' details in terms of the Emirates ID and their uh, uh, birth date. Uh, now, as per the current uh, mandate, you just need to include the number of occupants that live um, in the house, but it's the choice is yours. You can still re uh, re record every one of the occupants, and as I was saying, I guess the benefit of that is that uh, with time, there will be a, an option of printing an updated JARI certificate that shows the names of all the occupants, which, which is a document that would come in handy for them for official purposes in, 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 the, in the future. Uh, but um, the mandate does actually, uh, under the previous version and the current version, require for you to register the, at least the very least the number of people who live in the um, uh, in the house in the full time basis. So, yes, you would have to register your your husband to do this. It's on the REST app. It really is very simple. Uh, so um, it's um, you just need to activate your REST app. If it you haven't really done is. So it really is very simple. We we hadn't used it hadn't at all. And it was a two minute process to register us on the app and then to get everything uploaded. So, Kamala, don't worry. Um, staying with rent, no name on this message saying, um, we currently have a three-year Dubai property investment, which is due for immediate renewal. Um, we're informed we're now entitled to a 10-year investor visa if we show the property's worth a million or a million cash fixed deposit for two years. Please clarify if this is correct. Very confused. Uh, not not exactly. So if the property is worth more than two million and you've actually paid two million, then yes, you would be qualified to have a 10 year visa. If the property is less than two, uh, two million, then you'd be qualified for five year investor visa. Um, so still better than a three year visa, but uh, the value of the property has to be over two million. 
Now, I'm not sure if uh, you are relying on the current market rate of the property or the purchase price, because if the purchase price is different, if, if the current market value is higher than what you bought it for, you can apply on the basis of what the property is worth today and not what it was worth when you bought it. Okay, so, if it's so valuation over two million, to Hopefully it is over two million now. Copa has grown something. Um, and no name on this one saying, my wife and I own two properties valued at three million dirhams. Um, how can we apply for a green or gold visa? Yes, you can. And you can apply for a gold visa uh, because the property is worth more than um, two million. And uh, you can combine your uh, property investments and apply on the basis of a cumulative value of the investment, which in this case, if you have two properties, one, a million and a half each, then you would qualify. And um, in this particular case, you could you could apply in two ways. Either you can apply, you have a, a primary person that applies, let's say, the wife and mm. uh, and then the husband mm, will then point. have the sponsor the 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 husband visa or you can apply um, uh, individually but if you apply in, as individual investors you should have two million dirhams each okay uh, so in other words you should have cumulatively four million if each one of you has wants to have your own investor visa but you certainly can have a primary uh, sponsor and then uh, the spousal visa thanks Ludmilla Life Balance on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. We are joined live now by Ludmilla Malava from HPL Malava and Pluka. Now, Ludmilla, I'm going to be completely honest. How do you feel about a super quick fire round? Because I want to help as many people as possible. Can we do it? Let's do our best. Let's do our best. Okay. John is saying, um, I have difficulty in paying my last rental check of 10,000 dirhams. My landlord is threatening to take legal action as the check is one month overdue. What can he do? My lease also expires next month. Uh, well, the landlord can file a case with RDC for the payment of the check, and that will be a successful check because that's a confirmed debt. And then on the back of the failure to uh, to pay rent, he can also ask for an eviction. Uh, but he won't be able to come and just kick you out of the property um, physically until he has a court order. Okay. And speaking of rental, message is saying, um, can, what can Ludmilla tell us about rent hikes? Why is there no protection for tenants? The landlord can now hike the rent up to whatever they want as long as it's in line with a rental index in the area. But this could be a huge hike. There used to be protection like a percentage cap on how much it increased year by year. Rira won't shed any light on this and I can't get to the bottom of it. The law has not changed on this, uh, on this um, angle. So it's the same, the same uh, caps apply. Uh, and the rent has gone up, uh, but the percentages remain the same. The maximum percent that the landlord can increase rent is 50%, and that's if the market is more than, if you're paying the rate that is uh, less than 50% below market, uh, So which almost never happens. Um, so in most cases, the, the rent increase is, is very marginal. It's between 5 to 10 to 15%. And so check the rear calculator. That will be your best help. And that calculator is based on that same law that you're referring to. Okay. Sticking with rent, uh, no name on this message saying, our landlord is coming tonight to renew the lease. He hasn't been in touch since last year. I guess we can renew under current terms and conditions, i.e. the same rate. Thank you. But yes, you can. And I would uh, certainly uh, encourage you to do so. But uh, remember to do this. You don't necessarily need to meet with a landlord uh, personally if you don't want to, because you, de- you certainly want to have it all documented one way or another. So even if the landlord comes, make sure to have a copy of the document um, so then you can apply and, and renew your jury. But otherwise, the same terms and conditions apply as before. Let's go to personal law here and absolutely fine to be anonymous. No name saying, can a divorcee receive alimony from a Muslim husband? The children are not married, but all adults, 22 and 20, the wife isn't working. 
Uh, the alimony you can receive, but it will be fairly limited if the children live with the mother. Uh, there could be some um, some limited alimony, but in most cases under the um, Sharia law, uh, under the UE personal status law, if that's the law that's applied, which is based on the principle of Sharia, the alimony to the wife is fairly limited. Okay. Now, a longer message here, one I hope you can help shed some light on, Ludmilla, saying, I've got a 13-year-old um, and 8-year-old, both girls. I want to file for divorce. I've been told my wife will have full custody and I'm the only guardian. Who will only get visitation rights, i.e. visit my daughter in my wife's home? My question is, will the court allow me as dad to have both my daughters to stay over at my home um, at least two weekends and share their vacations? If this is not allowed, how is it fair towards the father? Or can we have a joint custody? where father and mother have equal rights, healthy co-parenting terms. I'm asking all this because my wife is refusing to agree with me on having equal rights with the kids. How can this be fair and how can it be challenged? It depends on the law that's applied. If you're using uh, either, if your marriage is civil, you can try to apply for a divorce under the uh, the Abu Dhabi civil marriages and its effects uh, court. Uh, where the marriage would be done under, as per the civil laws. And in that case, the custody will be 50-50. You can also claim, even if you're applying in, let's say, the Dubai courts for divorce, you can still claim the law of your own country to apply. But it is, in practical terms, more difficult to educate the, the local judges about a foreign law in this particular case. So they are a lot more comfortable to apply the law that they know, which is the UE personal status law. Mm -hmm. And in that case, the custody does fall. And also, if you're Muslim, then that's the only law that will apply to you. Uh, then uh, the custody does stay with the mother. And the custody is the physical possession and the guardianship is for the legal right. However, that's not to say that you cannot see your daughters or that your daughters cannot stay with you. That's absolutely not the case. That's not that's not what custody means. Custody means that the children just have primarily perhaps live with one parent and then they have visitation rights and uh, and uh, vacation rights, uh, uh, you know, depending on how either the parents decide or how the court um, rules. But in most cases, absolutely, it's very possible. And we see these kind of orders all the time where the court, if the parties cannot agree, the court will issue the uh, the right for the father, for example, to see the, 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 the daughters and have them stay with him and in his house for X number of days per uh, per week. And also uh, the judge will also rule again if the parties cannot agree on how the holidays and vacation should be split. Um, so so the judge can and does rule on these issues all the time. You will not be left without seeing your children uh, or without having them visit you. Um, so, but uh, I would highly encourage that. And I, ho I hope for your own sake and your children's sake that your wife can agree um, not to have to challenge this and you guys can come up with some sort of set, uh, amicable settlement on visitation rights in particular. Children first. Um, message here saying no name please and as we always say fine to be anonymous. I'm Emirati working in healthcare. Can my husband and kids aged four and two get golden visas? Husband is non-Emirati. Uh, for the time being, so the, the UAE citizenship law has recently been changed and there are provisions in the law that do um, suggest that uh, it will be possible in uh, due time uh, to um, also qualify these children for UAE nationality. But for the time being, it's still, an so the, the legal framework is there, mm -hmm. but in practical terms, it's still an evolving practice in terms of uh, um, especially you know, children and especially the spouses receiving Emirati citizenship under these kinds of circumstances. So uh, it's um, there's hope and uh, certainly the legal foundation is already in place. Uh, now it's just a matter of time. 
Not so much a question, but more of a heads up from Jamil saying, scam alert. I was using a well-known website for selling secondhand goods. To sell a laptop, man gets in touch saying he's interested. We'll send a courier uh, to pick up as he's in rack. Lint, link was sent to receive the money. All look legit, but in putting in my details, the amount, 2,000 dirhams, was taken from my account. I blocked it, called 901 with the details. Shouldn't courier companies be talking about this more? Uh, Perhaps I would also say there's probably a lot of responsibility on everyone's shoulders in this one and also alert the website of who this user is. Ludmilla, in terms of scams, we're seeing an awful lot right now. In, indeed, and the only way for the time being you can protect yourself. It sounds like a fairly intelligent and uh, savvy listener. Absolutely. And even then you got hooked. So, And that just happens to all the best of us. So I'd say for the time being, the best way to uh, to mitigate your damages is to only deal in cash. I mean, mm-hmm. that's... You know that perhaps until uh, until we have better uh, ways of of checking and verifying. The, thank the you for the heads up, Jamil. Re- appreciate it. I think knowledge is power. So thank you for flagging. Really, really helpful for people listening today. Um, a follow up message here saying, I asked the question a week ago about applying for a golden visa based on property value and not the original price in the title deed. Uh, you confirmed it's the value over two million as you did today. Unfortunately, there's no procedure at the DLD to accept a valuation statement. They only accept the title deed. Have a look at the website. You'll see. I went to the DLD Cube Center and they only look at the title deed. How can I get them to accept a valuation statement? Do I need to go through a lawyer? No, not necessarily. I just have to say you have to be patient because the law that is um, recently being uh, introduced is still being implemented. So I have to tell you, this law is introducing all sorts of uh, interesting and uh, sort of groundbreaking visas and residence permits and such. Uh, but it's it's a massive uh, and fundamental uh, overhaul of the UE immigration system. And a lot of the authorities are still working on the implementation of the f- different aspects of this law. And we know this for, for a fact because we go to basically immigration uh, centers, including DLD, on sort of regular basis to see how far the law is being implemented. And it's still work in progress. Mm-hmm. So just don't be discouraged. Uh, there is um, there's definitely a mechanism, and know for a fact, to apply on the valuation certificate uh, and not on the title deed. Um, so it's just a matter of perhaps giving some time uh, and uh, and just checking with different people because that's that's not you might correct. Get different answers. <laughs> yeah, um, Ludmilla, we've had a couple of messages following up on the birth certificate news. One asking about um, does that mean unmarried pregnant women can now get medical insurance? This is only just broken today, so we're going to look at this a little bit more in depth for next week. So I will put that question aside for next week. And in the meantime, Ludmilla, thank you so so much. You absolutely smashed it there with a quick fire round. There were some questions we didn't get to, as I said. We'll pop those aside. And in the meantime, just a big thank you, Ludmilla. You're an absolute superstar. Um, You can find Ludmilla Yamalava at her office often at HPL and Melvin Pluka, but also across social media too. Um, Lots of great resources there. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.